we go. Well, good morning, church family, and uh, I really pray that uh, you sense uh, God's love for you today. You may be here today sensing that you've just been broken, and uh, we all come from different worlds uh, this past week, and some of our weeks, some of us, we just had a glorious week, and it's been good, and others of us, it was all we could do to get here, and we feel broken, and so we pray that you would know that uh, that uh, God loves you, we love you, and uh, we're just delighted. I'm delighted to get to worship uh, with you this morning. Uh, if this is your first time here, my name is Randy, and I'm the lead minister at the church, and I'm actually going to be uh, through these glass doors and to the right in a room called the Fireside Room after our services, along with our elders, and I'll be happy to uh, pray with you uh, and just hear your story if, uh, if you would like to. Uh, we'd appreciate that. So, so welcome. Um, when you think about what it is we do here uh, at church and just going to church and uh, Bible study and small groups, when you think about Christianity, do you think of Christianity as ice cream? 31 flavors? You get to choose what you like? Your preference? Or do you think of Christianity as medicine? where you, know, you have a particular uh, ailment and you need help and the medicine can help and you don't get to choose the medicine. You, you choose not what you prefer. You choose what heals. So how do you think of Christianity? How do you think of what's going on here as we gather on Sunday morning? Um, Jesus said that I've not come for the healthy. I've come for the sick. So already the uh, medicine mentality the medicine, the prescription paradigm is, is at work in the gospel. That, that we come, um, you know, uh, sin sick, and we need help. And uh, Lord, can you help us? So there's already a, a medicine paradigm going on there. But as you have probably guessed, our world doesn't necessarily view Christianity or religious truth in terms of medicine. Our world views religious truth like ice cream. And you get what you like, and you get what you prefer, and you get what you would like to choose. Right? Now, the question is, how do you bring medicine to people who, who love ice cream? Especially when they are sin-sick. So it's not just that you're the only one who's ill, but everyone who's ill. So imagine going into Baskin-Robbins 31 Flavors. Imagine going into Cocomera. Imagine going into a TCBY and trying to convince someone who loves ice cream, and especially the frozen yogurt things. And you know, they can make your own flavors these days, right? And you can mix and match, and you've got these little cardboard things that go into the cup that divide out the different flavors. For those of you who are kind of, you know, obsessive about that kind of a thing, I know I am. Anyway, how do you convince that that they need Vicks Formula 44? Well, that is really where we're headed today as we look at a passage of Scripture um, in our series over the New Testament book of Acts. 
What we do here at Windsor as a part of our worship time is that we have uh, singing and then we have like a large group Bible study where we do some learning from God's Word. And not just learning for the sake of information, but it's because we believe that God's Word changes our lives. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 17. You'll find that on page 926 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, I'd like you to avail yourself to that. It's in the pouch in front of you, and you just turn to, uh, to page 926. And if you don't have a Bible um, of your own, period, just please take that, put your name in it, and receive it as a gift from the church family. We've been studying through... The Acts of the Apostles, which is a chronicle of the history of Christianity from around A.D. 30 to about A.D. 65. The first 30, 35 years of Christianity is what we see in the book of Acts. And here, the Apostle Paul, who was a Christ persecutor, but now has become Christianity's fiercest proponent, here the Apostle Paul is in the ice cream capital of the Roman Empire, the city of Athens. And we're going to hear how he brought the truth of the gospel to this city full of ice cream lovers. And we're going to answer this question this morning. Here it is. How do we engage our culture with the gospel? How do we engage our culture with the gospel? And these verses that we're going to see uh, tell us, and there's four verbs that I want us to consider here. Uh, Feel, find, speak, engage. Feel compassionate outrage. Uh, Find common ground. Uh, Speak gracefully and truthfully. And then expect different responses. Feel fine, uh, speak, engage. That's what we're going to discover in Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. Uh, I'm going to read 16 to 21. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they thought he was preaching Two divinities, Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This is God's Word. So then the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. And I want you to see this map that 
tracks where he's been, starting in Antioch of ancient Syria, which is actually the ancient city of Antioch is in modern-day Turkey within its borders. Paul left Antioch of ancient Syria and went to Derbe and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch of Syria. And these were cities where he brought Christianity and established Christian communities. And we saw for a little while he was discerning God's will, trying to figure out where the Lord wanted him to go. And he ended up in Troas. And at Troas, uh, he had a vision of someone in Greece or Macedonia calling him to come. And so that's why they set sail across the Aegean and uh, went to Neapolis. And then found himself in Philippi where we have this incredible experience in Acts chapter 16 where the Apostle Paul started a Christian community, uh, left Philippi, and then went to Thessalonica and Berea. That's in the first part of Acts chapter 17. And Paul would go to a synagogue. He would proclaim that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah and a spiritual community People would believe that uh, Paul's preaching that Jesus is the, the fulfillment of God's promises for Israel and a spiritual community would form and then Paul would face resistance. So wherever Paul went, good things happened and dangerous things happened. The good things happened were that Christian communities like ours here would form in and, and homes and uh, people would hear Jesus preached and uh, people of all ethnicities and ages and backgrounds, people who had no other reason for gathering together were captured by the love of Jesus and uh, this otherworldly love knit them together into a beautiful, beautiful family. And that was the good thing. The, the dangerous thing was that Paul was persecuted and the persecution seemed to intensify wherever Paul went so much so that Paul's traveling team, Silas, Timothy, and Luke, who is the author of Acts, said, Paul, buddy, we got to get you out of town. It's not. Your, your life is in danger. And so they put him on a ship to Athens while they stayed in Thessalonica and Berea, bolstering these uh, new spiritual communities. And so that's why it says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them, that's Silas, and that's Timothy, and that's Luke. So Paul's by himself in Athens, has obviously never been to this great and glorious city of Athens before in his life. And my, what a glorious city it was. Take a look at this uh, animated recreation and just look at that for just a moment. These cities were very sophisticated. This was a city of about 25,000. There was a marketplace. That's what's going on in the middle. You can see the athletic arena up and to the left. And then you can see the Acropolis. There in the center, that big, like, knobby stone. And on the Acropolis there was a temple to Athena, the goddess, called the Parthenon. 
the part of, then you go to Greece today, this is what you'll see. Now that was built around the year 432 B.C. So when Paul got there in around A.D. 50, that was 500 years old. So when you go to Athens today to see the Parthenon, you're seeing the very same facility, the same structure that the Apostle Paul saw when he was there 2,000 years ago. I, I just find that fascinating. And the rich history. For me, it's, I mean, a very little part of that would be like going to Springfield and seeing Abraham Lincoln's home and uh, the big, you know, hat and where the mirror is and home and where he worked. And just, there's Paul at the Parthenon. Wouldn't it be great to go there? I mean, it's in the 80s today. I looked it up on the Weather Channel. Low humidity, and it's mostly sunny. It's just not bad. I mean, January, it, it's from like in the mid-40s to the mid-50s. I mean, I could do that, you know. Wouldn't it be great to go to Greece and see the Parthenon and then study this scripture right there? Wow. Well, if you can't get there, go to Nashville, Tennessee. Absolutely. In Nashville, Tennessee... There is a full-size recreation. Maybe some of you have been there. You know, you go, so you go to Grand Ole Opry, get your country music fix, and then go get cultured, I guess. I don't know. Um, but I, to me, country music is classical music. But I'm from Oklahoma. So well, anyway, it's six to one half dozen the other. There's the Parthenon. It, it, that's in two miles from downtown. And then when you go into the Parthenon, that, that's a recreation. It's 40 feet high of the goddess Athena, which is what the apostle Paul would have seen inside this ancient temple. It was this fascinating city, the city of Athens. The culture, you know, the cradle of democracy and Western civilization and uh, Socrates, Aristotle, uh, 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 Plato, Pericles. My goodness, the, the, the culture, the history, the richness of it all. I mean, Luke could have told us that in these verses, but that's not what Luke told us. Verse 16, what Luke says Paul saw that the city was full of idols. Literally, it was luxurious with idols. It was smothered with idols. The population of Athens, 25,000. The population of the idols in Athens, 30,000. One Roman from the first century commented that it was easier in Athens to find a goddess or a god than it was to find a human being. That's how full the city was of idols. And let's just pause right there for a minute. There's a lesson for us. Here it is. How do you see your city? How are you looking at your Champaign-Urbana community? You go into work tomorrow, how do you see the people at your work? You go to your neighborhood, how do you see your neighbors? 
Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we no longer look at anyone from a worldly point of view. Are you able to understand that part of what it means to be a citizen of heaven is that we are an ambassador of an embassy and we look differently. We see our visual is different than how someone from this earth might see. And that changes. That changes then how we feel because you see, the, uh, Luke says that the Apostle Paul saw and then the Apostle Paul felt. That's where we get to the word provoked in verse 16. His spirit was provoked within him. That's a very complex word. It's a mixture of anger, oh, aghast, oh, and sorrow. It's a mixture of uh, compassion, and it's a mixture of outrage. And we need to have both as we look at our culture. Uh, we, there is outrage. Paul was seeing people who were living in open rebellion of the one true God by pursuing these 30,000 powerless idols. But then he was full of compassion because his heart was broken because they were like blind, groping in the dark. And that word needs to be in our lives. And you have to have both because if all you express is outrage, then you're going to be judgy. But if all you express is compassion, well, then you're going to be wishy-washy. See, and Paul had both. And one writer said that, you know, the reason why we don't feel what Paul felt is because we don't see what Paul saw. So, it begins with our eyes. How do you look? How do you see? Do you see as the Apostle Paul saw so that you can feel the way he felt so that then you can reason and speak as Paul began to speak, see? So the, the, the seeing and the feeling come before the speaking. And that's why verse 17 says when he got to the synagogue, he reasoned with the Jews. So Christianity is about reasoning and using your mind and thinking. And so Paul would take the Hebrew scriptures, as I said, and, and told uh, the audience there that Jesus is this long-awaited Messiah. But then look at what happened when he got into the marketplace. The marketplace, think the quad at the U of I. Think quad day. And in addition to all the hurly-burly that goes on on Quad Day, uh, throw in, you know, a, a market where food is being bought and sold, and then um, also uh, throw in business and commerce and where people are looking for jobs and trying to find people to work jobs, and, and then uh, think just news being broadcast because it's not like... Well, that's where they, that was their version of internet surfing. <laughs> they would go to the marketplace and they would hear the news by a herald being spoken. And, and so the marketplace was where it all happened. And so that's where the apostle Paul was. And, and, and he was reasoning in the marketplace, uh, talking to this, this very, very diverse 
group of people from all over the empire and from the Athenians and who were different idol worshipers about Jesus. And that's when he ran into two major philosophical groups of the city. Verse 18, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Now, I thought that I knew all about Epicureanism and Stoicism until, uh, you know, this week when I actually did the research. I used to think that Epic the Epicureans made beer. You know, that's what I thought. Go for the gusto. You only live once. They were beer makers. Oh, you know, uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you'll die. Not quite. Not quite. Uh, the Epicurean philosophy uh, came from a person named Epicurus. And Epicurus was a pursuer of pleasure. But this is how he told people to pursue pleasure. You pursue pleasure by avoiding pain. And the way that you avoid pain was don't drink too much and don't eat too much and don't get too involved in relationships and try to stay out of the, just try to keep it simple. Don't be complex. Travel light because the gods are that way and they're not involved. They're kind of separate. They don't really care. Uh, so, and then they're at peace because they keep it simple. And that's kind of how Epicurus taught. And, and here's a quote from uh, the philosopher Epicurus. It's a famous one. I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. That's how the guy lived life, all right? You know, you live, and then you die, and then you're dead. And dead people don't have worries. So enjoy life while you can because this life is all there is, the Epicurean. That's what Paul contended with. And then he contended with the Stoic philosophers. The Stoic philosophers said, no, God is everywhere. And uh, the gods are everywhere. And they've determined uh, where we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do and your lot in life. And so if you happen to be uh, wealthy and you can afford the wedding that uh, we witnessed yesterday, go for it. Uh, but if you're, uh, if you're not and you're in poverty, uh, well, then, you know, just deal with that, okay? Life is hard, then you die. That was on their T-shirt, the Stoics. I thought the Stoics originally had come from the planet Vulcan. But no, no, they weren't just, you know, uh, they weren't, they, their last name was not Spock, all right? Uh, um, uh, um, the gods decided what lot in life you were supposed to be in, and you just needed to deal with that. So, so why would I want to help someone who is under-resourced holding a sign on North Prospect? Because the gods had determined that they'd be there. So I'm, the stoic would say, they just need to learn to deal with that in their life situation, you see. Uh, here's a quote from Viktor Frankl, who taught Stoicism. When we are no longer able to change a situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. That's Stoicism, okay? Now, I'm telling you all this because as you are entering your culture with the medicine of the gospel in, uh, uh, in, in an ice cream factory, 
I'm telling you all this because part of what makes for wise witnessing is trying to find common ground. And there's a little bit of truth that a Christian say, yeah, okay, I can, I can see where that may be the case. And we see that as the Apostle Paul is dealing with the Athenians. And he's on their home court. And they know it. And he knows it. And so they're kind of snooty. What's this babbler trying to say? Babbler literally describes like a crow who's picking up seeds and scraps and putting it together. And that's how they thought of Paul. They thought he was talking about this divine married couple, Jesus and the resurrection. They'd not heard that before. So they said in verse 19, we want to take you to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was more than just a philosophical educational board. It was a governing body. In a sense, the apostle Paul was on trial here. And it says, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Keep in mind that the Areopagus, centuries ago, sentenced Socrates to death. On what charges? Corrupting youth and introducing foreign deities. So this is not just going to be a pleasant conversation. Paul needs to defend Christianity responsibly. Now, you can read his address in about two minutes. Almost every scholar that I've read this past week said it was probably about a two-hour speech. What an opportunity before such a body to be able to explain Christianity. How does he start? By finding common ground, verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Now remember, Luke says Paul was provoked. He was aghast. He was outraged. He was full of compassion. But he doesn't act judgy to the Areopagus. He doesn't condemn them to hell. He's finding common ground. Listen, what Paul is doing here is he's practicing um, classical tolerance. Classical tolerance. Now, our culture today really doesn't know about classical tolerance. Our culture buys into what's called, or what I call, contemporary tolerance. And here's how I define contemporary tolerance. It's okay to say you're right, but you can't say I'm wrong. Okay? It, that's contemporary tolerance. See. Paul asserts classical tolerance. And here's classical tolerance. Classical tolerance is this. I disagree with your viewpoint. I respect your person. See? I disagree with your viewpoint. I respect your person. Here's another way of saying the same thing. Classical tolerance. Egalitarian to people 
So I'm going to show respect and civility. And I'm going to listen to understand. And I know that I've understood when I can responsibly restate your view in a way that you will say, yes, you have accurately described what my view is. So, so you've got to, before you even begin to address the view, you've got to fully understand the view. And to understand the view is to understand it the way that person intended to give it. All right? And so we are egalitarian to people. We show respect. But then it says, this says classical tolerances, we are elitist to ideas. That is to say, we want to responsibly critique and evaluate viewpoints and opinions in the interest of learning. And that, friends, by the way, is really the purpose of the university so that learning can occur. And um, two books have come out recently. I just read reviews of them this week that deal with uh, more of an abandoning of contemporary tolerance, asserting classical tolerance. And the first uh, is... And one's written by uh, more or less a Christian, and the other is written by a secular voice. Uh, one book is called Speak Freely, Why Universities Must Defend Free Speech. Uh, and then the second book is called Hate, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. And both of these books assert that the universities serve their function best when they offer arenas in which students can debate each other rigorously, but also places where those who share a common view or interest can reason from a common starting point. So, so the university, like Athens, needs to be a place where ideas can be, with civility and respect, be talked about and, and argued, that is to say, debated in terms of the ideas. Classical tolerance. I disagree with your viewpoint. I respect your person. And that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here in Athens. He's finding common ground. He's showing respect. I perceive that you're very religious and and I, I, I see that you are worshipers. You even have an idol called to an unknown God. And this is Paul's segue into Christianity, where he says, that which you worship as unknown, I want to make known. And he begins to speak in a way that's full of grace and full of truth. Verse 24, he says, there is one God who created the world. He's the creator of the world. So, so how can a temple hold him? Paul says, I'm not here to ask for a building permit. I don't want to build a temple because the one true God needs no temple. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. And then Paul says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Oh, I've been waiting to get to this part of our message because I want to teach us a word here today. All right. This is a great word. Maybe you know it. Maybe I'm the last person to have learned this word this week. It's quite possible. But let's look at the word. The word. Anybody ever seen that word before? Well, let's pronounce it. 
a C, a T. A C, a T. A C, a T. Let's try that on three. One, two, three. A C, a T. Again, one, two, three. A C, a T. One more time. A C, a T. Now say it faster. A C, a T. A C, a T. A C, a T. A C, a T. It's a new word. What does it mean? Here's what it means. It's glorious. God doesn't need us. Isn't that good news? I really, God doesn't need us. A seity, uh, from himself. That means that if in five minutes, everything seen and unseen in the universe were to go away, God would still exist. A seity. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need anything from us. And this is, this is such good news because that means he's self-sufficient. The gods of the Greeks made the Greeks work for them. But the God of the Bible, one scholar says it this way, I love it, is not an employer who has to lean on others to make the business go. He amplifies his all-sufficiency by doing the work himself. We are the dependent partner in our relationship with the Lord. Our job is to wait for the Lord. And then I love this line. Christianity is not a help-wanted ad. Christianity is a help-available ad. For God is not a scout looking for a first-round draft choice to win the league. He is an unstoppable fullback ready to take the ball and run touchdowns for anyone who will trust him to win the game. He's not seeking people who will work for him, but rather people who will let him work powerfully in and through them. Isn't that wonderful? God doesn't need us. That means whenever we go to God... He never, ever says to us, do you know how many prayer requests I've heard? I'm spent. I'm just totally spent, all right? <laughs> he, ne he never says that. He never says that. At the end of the day, you know, when we collapse into our beds, he doesn't have a bed. He doesn't need sleep. He has no need. He has self-sufficient. And you say, yeah, but I want to give something to God. What can I give to him? Do you know what you can give to God? Give him your anxieties. 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Do you know what you can give to God? Your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Aseity. God doesn't need us. Oh, thank you, Lord. We, however, need him <laughs> desperately. And he knows this. And so he is, in fact, involved in history, unlike the Epicurean perspe perspective and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, so he's involved, allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God. So God created us for fellowship, not because he's lonely, but because he is love. And love always shares, sharing 
loving, giving God who wants us to seek him, wants us to seek him. So he has a high view of human life and we're wanting to seek him and yet we're groping and, and yet he's not far from each of us. The, the Epicureans are wrong. Uh, they're mistaken. They have an improper view of who God is. He is involved and, and he is not far from each of us. For in him, here we go, we live and move and have our being. You won't find that in the Old Testament because Paul's not quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting one of their authorities. So one of the ways that we engage in our culture with wisdom is to find a source of authority that our culture identifies with and then speak to that. And that's what Paul is doing here. And that's why he also says, for we are indeed his offspring, as some of your own poets have said. God is involved. He created us for fellowship. And, and then Paul says in verse 29, if God is this great, then it only makes sense that he be worshipped how he wants to be worshipped, not how we want. And if we are his offspring, then how foolish it is to create an image of him. For us to say, well, I like to think of God as or well, everybody has to determine God for himself or herself. Listen, of what value uh, is God if you shape him according to yourself? See, Paul's reasoning with the uh, leaders of the Areopagus, and they're tracking with him here. And then Paul offers a philosophy of history in verses 30 and 31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, past, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, present, because he has fixed the day, future, past, present, future. The Greeks believed in a cyclical, uh, that, that uh, almost like a uh, reincarnational cycling and and. and Christianity says, no, it's not in cycles. It's linear. It started at a point, time, and it's going to end at a point, time. And Paul says, I'm, I'm trying to build you a framework so that when I finally get to Jesus, you'll understand. So this God who is over all and in all and through all, you've heard of God's holiness and love, You've heard that God wants to have a relationship with us. And you've also heard that God is a God of justice because he has set a fixed time in history when his appointed judge will give a verdict on the world. And this judge, this judge uh, has been accredited by his own resurrection from the dead, his bodily resurrection. God, his own son, came to live and die and was resurrected. You see what Paul is doing here? He's, he's building this worldview, explaining this worldview, and then explaining how Jesus fits in it. So when you read the Bible, don't just read it as 66 separate books. 
there is a storyline. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, God created all that we see. Fall, the pinnacle of creation, human life, rebelled against this holy God. Now this is why things are broken. Relationally, physically, between God, between ourselves. And now redemption, God sent his son on a rescue operation so that one day the entire world will be restored. The times of ignorance are over. God wants all to turn to him. And this is true because of the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And Christianity stands or falls on the bodily resurrection of Christ. And at that point, the Athenians said, time out. Time out. Verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Why is that? Because their worldview would not permit someone to be resurrected bodily from the grave. If, if he would have said Jesus is immortal or Jesus is eternal, uh, they, they would have bought into that. That would have been okay. But that's not what Paul said. Paul said that God raised a dead body, a corpse, back to life, life immortal. And the Greeks just, they just couldn't fathom that. They wouldn't fathom that because that would mean that they'd have to shut down their temples and they were too invested uh, in what was false to change. And that's why they said, nah, that was a deal breaker. They would not consider the possibility that an all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, loving God, the God of aseity, could raise his son from the dead. And that's where we get to these different responses. Feeling compassionate outrage, uh, finding common ground, speaking grace and truth, and expect different responses. Do you see the three responses in these verses? Some mocked. Nah. Others said, tell me more. We want to hear. We want to hear again about this. And then others, verse 34, believed. See? Some said nonsense. Others said, tell me more. And still others said, I'm all in. And that's what we should expect when we enter an ice cream store with medicine. Oh, my goodness. I, I really do wish ice cream could cure cancer. <laughs> but it doesn't. But the medicine of the gospel will cure the cancer of sin. And that's why it's so important for us as we go out into our Athens so it's so important for you to understand the ministry that God has given you where you are. And I believe that. God's given you a ministry. And that ministry is one of feeling and finding and speaking and expecting. And how we need Christ-saturated uh, doctors and lawyers and soldiers and uh, law enforcement personnel and fire services and emergency services and carpenters and skilled workers and mechanics and managers and homemakers and uh, your winsome life can engage our community replete with non-Christian philosophies and ideologies. Your life, your words and the 
winsome like you have, can engage others with the gospel. Someone put it this way. This is so important. We cannot expect unbelievers to learn our ideas first so that they can understand us. We need to go to them. We need to learn what they think. We need to find ways to present them with the truth of the gospel in ways that will be meaningful to them so that if they do reject the gospel, they'll at least know what they're rejecting. See? And that's our job, is to just share the truth because the power, the power of the gospel can change lives. The answer to pluralism is a prepared believer who speaks and lives the gospel in a way that's full of grace and truth. And to be exposed in the light of Christ in a great, graceful and truthful manner. The, the simple truth. And the gospel is so simple, church family. You can communicate it in one-syllable words. I'm going to do that right now. And then I'm going to pray. And then we're going to sing. God made us and loves us. We sinned and fell from God's grace. But God in his great love sent his son to die for our sins and he raised him from the dead. Now if we turn to him in faith, he will cleanse our sins and give us life and grant us peace. He who has ears, let him hear.